0: And uh, without any further ado, let's get right down to what we're talking about tonight, which is the uh, uh, sixth lecture of seven uh, about Simcha Asaf. I bet you most of you have never heard of him. And uh, happens to be my favorite, my person, my, my, my favorite uh, historian, uh, very interesting person. You don't have to like somebody to talk about him, but nevertheless, I've always found his, uh, his biography very interesting, especially here's a person you'll see by the time we're finished, never went to school, never went to elementary school, never went to high school, certainly never went to college, and there was a full professor at Hebrew University, and a president and rector of the uh, university, uh, and beyond, member of the Israeli Supreme Court, uh, and each time they had to pass special laws to allow him in. So, did, what I just described will never happen again, <laughs> if you know anything about the university world. Um, so, it's, it's, it's very interesting. By way of putting in context before the riots, last, last uh, time we talked about a secular Zionist historian, It's a bear Fritz Baer at uh, some length. This week, we're talking about a religious Zionist. These are two types of Zionism, right? Two types of Zionism is a movement that ain't around today, really, OK, what I'm talking about. Uh, last week, we considered a brilliant intellectual uh, that's bare, emblematic, uh, emblematic of, a se- of a generation of, of thoughtful and even a spiritual secular Zionists who struggled without much success to understand Judaism and to discover a different Judaism that would provide them with an inner meaning and direction and spirituality. They're looking for an alternative, as, as I tried to explain. But tonight we deal with somebody quite different a person who had no such issues at all. He lived a very different spiritual life, wasn't plagued by doubts or quests, and whose life was actually a rather seamless whole, I'm going to argue. Last week I took you to the world of uh, German jewelry, and Judaism in the fin de siècle, in the period before the First World War, assaulted when the Jews were, as we tried to explain, by intellectual anti-Semitism, by self-doubt, clutching at Herzl's Zionism like a life raft, um, alienated from its own proud traditional religious traditions, but determined to discover a Jewish dignity that resol- resonates in the modern world. This is what Herzl represented to that generation growing up in the late 1800s and early 1900s. It may seem funny today and all that, but I don't think it does. Okay. And uh, this was the powerful attraction to alienated Jews of uh, Zionism in the utopian uh, years of of, over 100 years ago. Tonight, we enter a very different place, Uh, also in the Fandesia, called in the same period of time, in the early 1900s. Tonight, we encounter the Russian-Lithuanian shtetl. To be more accurate, uh, and I want to just make a a, a word about this, Um, this hasn't yet hit the historians yet, but we don't, only recently, let let me think how to phrase this, only recently has there, turned, has there occurred a country called Belarus. I know you know the map. So now there's a country called Belarus, but historically there wasn't. And it's a territory. And when we talk about Russian Jews, there aren't any Russian Jews because Russia never allowed the Jews into Russia under in Tsar's time, down to the First World War. You understand very, very few Jews could live in Moscow, St. Petersburg, and particularly beyond that. They just don't want any, that's an old policy. And so if you're talking about Russian Jews, no, as opposed to Polish Jews, you're actually talking about Belarusian Jews. like my father, you know, from Minsk and place like Lubavitch? Um, somehow or other, this model hasn't yet hit the, the uh, intellectual world, the academic world. Uh, but that's what it is. And it's not Lithuanian exactly, although it's very uh, close to it, but it's its own thing. The Chavetz Chaim, for example, is a Belarusian Jew, not a Litvak. You understand? Uh, the Voloshan Yeshiva, is actually a Belarusian yeshiva, and so we'll start start thinking in those terms. In about five or ten years, you'll start hear more about that. I predict, um, I think. There's a famous. It reminds me of a famous story. At the end of the First World War, around 1920, 21, something like that. There was. Uh, there used to be all these. The First World War lasted four more years, from 1918 to 1922, in Eastern Europe, and uh, the Reds and the Whites and the Poles and the Lithuanians and this group of kind and that group, but you know, all the Ukrainians, everybody ran around shooting, killing each other. And it really was like that. And at the end, I think in 21, I believe, there was a peace conference where they tried to work out the borders. So the foreign ministers all got together, the story goes, from uh, Soviet Union now, that's what it was, and Poland and Lithuania to work out the borders of those three territories. So the foreign ministers, they took the public photographs, but the actual work is done by the deputy foreign minister in each case, or their, their, their number two person. All of whom were Jewish. So the a Soviet deputy, well, the Soviet foreign minister was Chicharin, but the guy under him was Adolf Jaffe, who was uh, Trotsky's right hand man, uh, who had come out of a traditional background, but completely communized and all that. The Polish uh, uh, legal expert in the foreign ministry was Vladimir Ashkenazi, who was a completely assimilated Jew. You had Jews like this in Poland in the 1800s that they never heard a word of Yiddish. They were thoroughly and totally Polonized. You understand? Thoroughly and totally polonized. And they lived with the Hasidim. He didn't know anything at all about Judaism. And the Lithuania, New Republicism, was, was uh, represented by uh, the, the legal expert, the foreign ministry, Shimson Rosenbaum, who was a famous Zionist. Later on, they named the street in Tel Aviv after him. So uh, it was a very good, they used to call it. And the story goes that the three of got together to work out the actual borders, you know, while the bosses do the, uh, the speeches. And uh, Vladimir Ashkenazi were completely assimilated. So he said, what shall be the basis for the negotiations as we drop the lines? And Shibsha Rosenbaum said like this, Lithuania is where it's Nusachlita, wherever the Jews dove in Ashkenaz. You understand? So this should be considered part of Lithuania because that shows the old historical thing. And Ashkenaz was so out of it, he said, OK, this will be the basis of the negotiations. And Yaffe, who was a communist, he said, you idiot. He says, you just gave away the whole Belarus and a big chunk of Poland, you fool. So these, um, these borders do ma- it didn't happen, don't worry. He says, these things, these things sometimes uh, happen as the way they do. As I say before, tonight we enter really the Belarusian shtetl, a Jewish population which has no self-doubts, uh, it's not Western, which sees itself uh, light years ahead of the Gentile peasant neighbors, a Jewish population which is quite aware of anti-Semitism, and accusations and denigrations of Judaism, but doesn't give a damn. Uh, the Goyim and all their charging go straight to hell. That's the attitude of here. That is the old attitude of the type of people I'm talking about out of which uh, Asaf uh, grows up. So yeah, the Tsar of Russia is always saying all these bad things about the Jews, but it's very famous. Acharam wrote a, a famous essay, the uh, um, Cultural Zionist, where he said, better to have sla- uh, freedom within the slavery than you Western Jews have slavery within the freedom. Understand? The Jew in France, he said, is officially has civil rights, but he's afraid to make a move because it shouldn't look like anything. And here in Russia, eh, you know. And if they have laws against us, you go around the laws. You know, that's how it works. Um, now, the truth of the matter is that's not exactly a true statement. That's Klappe pneum, meaning within the shtet, within the Jewish community, within the synagogue, they feel that way. But externally, they are browbeaten by the uh, czarist system. I'm gonna, I am going to hope to give a talk in the TNEC in a couple weeks. The Armelia Kaplan... Who was the Talmud Mubbuk at Alter Slobodka and ends up being the head of the Hillsheimer Seminary? Gives in 1919, drunk with the success of the Balfour Declaration, a Hespid for Theodor Herzl in uh, Telz Yeshiva. Okay? And it's quite a remarkable, uh, uh, quite a remarkable uh, Hespid. Uh, don't read it before I'm finished in Tinek. Uh, but the fact is, uh, no, no, he said like this he says, this is the first guy that got any kind of traction with the Goyim. Actually, this is what he says. The guy actually, for the first time, showed respect for the Jews, and we didn't get this from any of us. So, you know, in, in the shul, in the yeshiva, you know, we, we, we uh, laugh it off. But really, uh, it does hurt. So it's complicated. Now, the challenge to uh, Simcha Asaf concerning Jewish history will not be that of Fritz Baer, which is why should a modern Western-educated Jew care at all about the history of Jewish people. For Asaf, the challenge will be that of the yeshiva world. Why should anybody waste their time on Jewish history just learn Gomorrah? Right. This is the milieu he's coming out of, and so if you ask him about Chaim or somebody like that, he says, "What are you interested in history? Well, What's the history? What's it does? You know what I mean? Like, you know, well, I know what it is, of course, and it's you know a little bit interesting, but it's totally marginal. A person, a re, real men spend their time learning Gemara, Tosas, to be more exact. Uh, it's a different kind of a challenge, All right? He's not to have the challenge of the Western educated uh, people. So let's get right down to it. Interestingly. He's born in 1889 in a town called Luban, which you probably heard of later on, or some of you, because Moshe Feinstein was the rabbi there later on. But this is before Moshe Feinstein was even born, probably. And this is, in fact, it is. And and uh, and he was actually from somewhere else. He came there years later. Uh, it's a small community of simple Jews uh, from the old school, Machshiv Torah. You know that that type. And they used to bring food and water to the basement. and all this, all, all what you, everything connected with the idea of the old school. Um, he learns with parents who are doting, a doting father. His mother spoils him. He writes this. He says, My parents were Mephonic, me, uh, loving childhood. This is basically feathered the Roof. Tradition, tradition. Yeah, all that stuff. Really, Once in a while, it really happened. Now, his father, his uncle, and all the other relatives are Zionists. right? They're religious Jews, they're Shamar Torah mitzvahs, they do all the rest of it. It's 1889, so there, Herzl hadn't started yet. And growing up, so what's it was called the Zion? But they're very interested in. Everything connected with the new possibilities of Eretz Yisram. At the age of 12, parents say, enough spoiling. And anyway, he wants to go away. He said his parents wanted to continue to keep him at home and spoil him. And he goes away. He goes to Slutsk. Okay? Slutsk is a yeshiva about 25 miles away from, uh, from Luban. And uh, there's a young rabbi named Mr. Zalman Meltzer who will become famous later on. And he's the head of the yeshiva over there. And this is a, what I'm talking about is a classic Litvisha yeshiva boy career route. You understand? You got 12, you hang around in town. If you have brains, you go off to some yeshiva like that, and so forth. He learns there for a couple years. Already at that time, he has a weakness for Jewish history. So, yes, he learns the Gemara and all the sorts of things that they learn in the yeshiva over there, but he also reads uh, the type of history books that he it would be in a base medrash of looks like Yosifan, Tzemach David, believe me, he didn't see Azariah the Rashi, uh, you know, all the, the, the so-to-speak uh, golden oldies. Um, seder Hadoros. These are the books written of Chronicles long, long ago. Uh, his relative in Slutsk, he tells us, takes him to Zionist speeches and meetings. Chutzla Seder obviously. And at the time I'm talking about, uh, Zionism wasn't a crime exactly in the yeshiva. They had, the yeshiva world hadn't worked out its own attitude towards it. They were conflicted. Uh, this is particularly true because we're talking about when he's 12 years old, it's around 1900, 1901, Seder Herzl was riding high and for the majority, people don't notice for the majority of the Lithuanian rabbis and yeshivas, they are very com- conflicted as far as Herzl is concerned because he didn't care about what the new state of Israel looked like. Said, you see, That's what he wrote anyway. You want to be Haredi? Let it be Haredi. You want to be Dati? Let it be Dati. You want to be Chiloni? Let it be Chiloni. So that didn't bother them. What bothered them was the Khanaam and Weizmann and all the other guys who wanted to replace um, traditional Judaism with something else. So at the time he's going there, Zainab, a very uh, popular... Uh, but the boy wants to go and go to a better yeshiva. Slotsky is like a small town uh, business, uh, even though today it's become Lakewood. But um, he wants to go to a morchaja place. He wants to go to Tells. Tells is already hundreds of miles away. I'm talking about the early 1900s, uh, as we will see over here, and Tells is something special. Tells, at the period I'm talking about, was the number one yeshiva in the world, probably in the, in the Lithuanian world, let's put it that way, and undergoing a period of storm and drung, of tremendous, of riots, Revolutions, uh, learning like crazy um, plots. It was a wild and crazy place. Uh, in the glory years, in the early 1900s, the Rosh Yeshiva was uh, uh, Eliezer Gordon. The number two was Rosh and Shkub. These are famous names. For those who don't know, what I'm talking about these are very famous names. And uh, the Yeshiva of Yisroel Schkopf is even more famous in some in some respects. And they made tells after the fall of the Vilna Yeshiva in 1892, the number one spot if somebody wanted to go there for brains, especially if it's a type of yeshiva where all that count brains. You see? And tells in those days had that reputation. If you're smart, whatever you do, but if you're smart, you know we, we, we want you in there, and they weren't interested, or at least the boys aren't interested, and some with the Muslim, can, and some real film guy like that, they threw him out. You know, They wanted somebody who could scream and argue on, on a toaster very successfully. This is, in general, the golden age of the Lithuanian, yeshivas, there's no Hasidism here in this world, I'm talking about at all, get over that uh, finally, after bugging his parents and the yeshiva gets to Tells, and he learns there for four years Tells at this time was radioactive it wasn't just hot, it was radioactive in terms of learning, Reb Shimon Shqab had left but he'd been replaced by Rabbi Chaim "If you know these people are, these are famous Magid I'm talking about the analytical method and you know the, the, the thing that's going on over there um, let, me, let me put it this way and we have many descriptions of this, by the way. And as uh, someone recently wrote a history, uh, Professor Stamfer, who by interested in all this uh, sort of thing. Imagine a yeshiva. I'm talking about tells now. Imagine a yeshiva of uh, 400 guys, approximately, 400, 450 uh, of all types. And uh, just imagine a big place like this, a base meresh, and Imagine two guys get an argument over a, a gemara or a ptosis, And each one starts screaming at each other. And immediately, another one climbs here. Another one goes here. Within five minutes. 100, 200 people on this side, 102 people on that side, screaming, shouting, books are shouting, all the rest of it, passionately over the meeting of a Rosh or a toaster, or something like that, screaming for hours and hours and hours. And the Rosh Hashiva, he, the one, but let's go back one. And he, he loved this. And so that's how he was built. Uh, you understand? And uh, the problem is, they went on like this all day long, including during davening, during Kriya's Torah, and all the rest of that. There you had, yeah, yeah. So there you had a... Um, what should I say? There's a certain conflictedness, a cognitive dissonance on the part of Laser Gordon because on the one hand, hey, look, that's the type of person he is. They copied him. Okay? And the fact that people, they were smart guys and really around that they risked their eyes. so on the other hand, can't do it during dominating, right? That's one side of the problem. Uh, the other side of the problem is the period I'm talking about, which is 1900 and 1910, is the peak years of uh, Russian revolutionary activity among the yeshiva boys the impact of the 1905 Russian Revolution, everything goes along with that, on the Sheba boys. the fact that uh, the world was turning upside down all around them in the Russian Empire during these years, every ism was attractive to different people, someone for Zionism, one for socialism, one for communism, one for the Bund, and this, that, and the other. The argument is always that, uh, you know, this a uh, 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 period of extreme utopianism in Russia. Okay? Everybody dreamed that the revolution or the evolution as they see it is going to bring a, a paradise and end all human suffering and you know, make the world uh, perfect. It's a little funny looking back in Putin's Russia today, but nevertheless, that's what they saw at that time. And um, in, a, in a very smart yeshiva like tells, guys read the paper, uh, and the yeshiva at the time I'm talking about didn't stop them, and uh, they follow what's going on. Uh, <laughs> the uh, Was there at this time, uh, Yosef Kahaneman, uh, he was one of the big troublemakers. They asked him, I remember years ago, in, in Israel, it's from a Haredi newspaper. They asked him, like, in the 60s, they said, who's the best speaker you ever heard? He said, I was going to say the Chavitz Chaim, somebody I said, Trotsky, he was amazing. <laughs> okay? So Trotsky, among others, came to tell so He was gavol. My father also heard Trotsky, so it was very good. They, uh, but I'm just trying to tell you, that ain't your typical, you know, Shiva Lane-type situation. And, um, no, so, but, so what I'm trying to say is he goes to tell in a year of tremendous, fascinating intellectual turmoil, and the world's turning upside down, um, the Russian yeshivas were bothered by the fact that uh, too many boys are getting, uh, what's the right word, uh, carried off by this sort of thing. You get it? And there are many yeshivas, uh, tells less than others, but there were many yeshivas in which 50%, uh, 60% of the boys, the best boys, went off for all czarists, you know what I'm saying? This one became a social Zionist, This we came about this Zionist, this came about Bundes, this we got a communist, and all the rest of it. This, this, this is how it went. Um, there's even a famous joke or story they used to tell, uh, an apocryphal story, perhaps, perhaps not, in the 1920s at the Bund headquarters in Warsaw, which is a building like the Histogrid had, you know, one of these tall buildings with many floors, and a guy goes in to the top floor, <laughs> and to the main guy, the head of the Bund, and he sees uh, a collector coming out from Yishiv you know, coming out with a, with a receipt. And he says, you're giving to him. He said, where are we supposed to get the next generation of Bund leaders? You understand? <laughs> so this is, but, but, but you, you get what I'm saying. You, you understand. Tells was magnificently organized. They had a vod for everything. It's really int- worthwhile. I mean, I don't want to get too off of this, so I'll never get on my topic. But it's a very remarkable place that he was in for, uh, for a couple of years. Um, but on the other hand, the, the, uh, uh, and Rebel Gordon was mamish, uh, <laughs> a character and a half. Uh, and Simchas writes about this at great length, by the way. You know, he has a whole wonderful, uh, as everything he writes is wonderful, um, essay about his years and, and tells. Uh, <laughs> you know, the old. I just I can't. Say, I have to share this with you. He says, <laughs> the older guys were. Uh, you know, when you get old, you're not married yet. They go to the press. They come late to davening. They come late to learning. They, it's just natural to feel a certain depressed, this one's married, I'm not married, all the rest of it. And so Laser Gordon comes in the middle of the Seder and starts giving, he gives a club. everybody should listen, and he starts talking about Yaakov Avinu, right? And Yaakov Avinu, we know, uh, spent 14 years in Shane And the Gemara says that, uh, you know, later on, in Lovin's time, he rested or something, but in Shane for 14 years, uh, he didn't rest for a moment, he learned literally 24-7 14 years. And if you do your math, those who know the Gemara and McGill will perhaps remember this at the end of the first paragraph. If you do your math, Yaakov was like 65, 66 years old this time. Right? And so he says, Elter <laughs> right? He said, Yaakov, he was the old guy, wasn't married yet. And still it didn't stop him from putting 24-7 into learning and all the rest. And only he would come up with an idea uh, with, with a line like that. So anyway, so Simchas of eats This is what he wanted. He came to a place as like camelot. You understand? I mean, you know, the learning is great, the the, the, the as well, this and that, everything's going uh, crazy. However, he also walks in at a moment when there's a civil war going on in tells This is the one yeshiva that, was, that, that, that had riots and assassination attempts and beat ups and things like this that so didn't happen to any of the yeshivas. And the reason is because the, uh, the Rashashiva, uh, Raleigh's a Gordon, uh, he was conflicted. If you want to get down to the, uh, what the heck, we'll just say the way it was. He said there was a Rashiva and his son in law. The Rashid was Reza Gordon, the son of Yosele'i Blach. Reza Gordon was just a totally intellectual type person. If a guy was good in learning, he, he, he just fell in love with you, no matter what else you did. Uh, the son-in-law of Yosele'i Blach was a Musarist. okay? He was a Talmud of the Altar of Kelm, and, uh, you know, and that's who he was by nature, and he was a very controlled type person. That, 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 that's how he was built. And the, uh, and the son-in-law was always saying like this, you have to introduce Musser in the yeshiva, as not simply something to study for self improvement, but as a mishtar, as they would say, you know, as a certain sort of regime to control the boys and not have so much freedom out there. Because look, if you look around, the revolutionary material is claiming too many people. We have to have a better hold on the student body or we're losing our best and brightest. And uh, therefore, we have to tighten up the ship and bring in all kinds of rules and regulations, you see? Uh, this is totally separate from the uh, basic idea that if you study most, you'll be a better person, okay? Now, uh, the father-in-law was sort of, he, he'd been a student of Rishul Salanter, it's a complicated story, but he wasn't built that way. But that was the son-in-law says it. And what they ended up doing was they said, you have to bring in a mashkiach of the super Musa variety who will impose an iron uh, rule. You know, they're very Russian, you get it? Which is, you know, you have absolute control from the top down. And, uh, and they did do this, uh, Lev Chassman, the famous uh, Balmusser, in there, and when he comes in, he immediately starts to say, you "Can't do this without permission." Anybody comes late to dive and gets a Knoss. and you know they, they walk around with little black books and they put, write your name in every time you do an infraction. And instead of the atmosphere of a German Hochschule in which everybody's a graduate student and you're left totally on your own it's expected you'll pursue it on your own, instead it becomes like a West Point, I guess, or better yet, uh, like McDonald's, you know, wherever you, you know that your, your your bed wasn't made right and therefore the thing, And especially when it got to the point. Where, and he was very tough. He said, "I don't care what anybody says about this. We're going to do it." And the Russian Yeshiva did back him. And when he started uh, docking guys financially, so that really blew up because the Lithuanian Yeshiva isn't like the Hungarian Yeshiva, where everybody's used to just uh, kissing the hand that hits them. But uh, the opposite. You know, the, you know we're, we're, we're uh, uh, the, the elite over here, and nobody can treat us like dirt. And this led to huge clashes. Uh, they beat him up. Uh, they, 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 they. they, not, they uh, Destroyed the furniture of the yeshiva. Uh, they interrupted the seder. Uh, all kind of stuff. Now, not not Gordon. He was Gordon. Uh, they wouldn't touch him. You understand? But they really upset the place. He had to leave. Then he got the idea to bring in twenty guys. I don't know where he got to. They said the one yeshiva that wasn't infected by the Russian Revolution was the Slabodka yeshiva the Altar Slobotka. The guys read newspapers and they know what's going on in the world, but somehow or other it doesn't get to them. You understand? So he must have the right way and. Uh, so he, he said, you send me 20 guys, just come in and try to be my friend of the place. Well, naturally, all the local guys hated the 20 guys over there. They end up beating them up, throwing sand in their eyes, you know, uh, uh, the dropping uh, the, the, the new mashkiach they poured, uh, what he called, uh, uh, herring juice on top of them, and things like this. It was, it was, these, these are sorts of things. That, and by the way, Tim is in the middle of all this. You understand? Know no, so he's very good in learning. He obviously doesn't like the new muslims. You know, he's always there for the Seder, but he's always participating in all these uh, terrorist activities and all the rest of it. This is not your typical yeshiva experience. You understand? And what makes it really great is that, uh, uh, look, the, uh, the Han Hall locked up the, they closed the yeshiva down uh, at one point. And um, uh Reverend Laser Gordon, who, who lived for learning, uh, and not only that, but for this very intensive uh, sort of thing. I mean, I'm not doing justice to this. Well, he used to give a shear, I mean, this is fun. We well, used to give a sheer, uh He'd come in in the morning, and uh, it's not like a, a staid sort of uh, college lecture. People gather all around him, and then he says the gemara and He starts saying idea, and then people say, and he said, "What's the answer?" This is the answer. No, that's not the answer. Yes, it is. This is the answer. And this one's screaming, and then the other one takes up. She was bangs the table like Ruzdow. This is the answer. He said, "No, it's not the answer." And and, and uh, someone said, "What about this? You stole that from the safer Marit. I know where you got it from. You're a phony." You know, and they would embarrass him. And this one, oh, but they love it because you're a player. You understand? You're a player. If 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 he's nearby, he'll, he says, "The best a player, a guy, a Turk." You know, best <laughs> a And so no, but you. The point's like this: if You can't stand that he can't have a kiss. They, they love it. the guy. Said, I guess years later, people say he called me a dummy once. You know? You understand? This is this is electric. Over here. The Punavisharov, who became later on famous, the Rabbi Kahneman, he he, says, he used to say under certain crowds, not everywhere, he says, Zeis them finger. He said, Do you see this finger? He said, well, Laser Gordon broke it <laughs> in the middle of there. Because <laughs> I went to him, you're wrong, and he said, the best I fire, you know, like that. And he and he, and he broke the finger. Nowadays he said, Oh my goodness. Uh, where it's a lawsuit, you know, it's infection, it's all the rest of it. Don't get the world. He was like, he pulled my ear. He went like this. You know, it's, I'm trying to share with you the idea. And it's famous that a visiting uh, rabbi came there, was shocked by this atmosphere. And he reproved the boys at the, the, the lunch. They said, this is how you treat a person like this. And he really scared them. So the next time he got up and nobody said anything. And after two minutes, he says, I'm finished this year because I don't like to speak in a base oilom. I don't like to speak in a cemetery. You understand? <laughs> so I'll tell you, for a young guy, if you're, if you're smart This this is like a camelot. you understand? In other words, it's really um, perfect uh, for him. But they ended up closing the yeshiva over these kind of issues for a while. But the boy said, we're staying anyway. And when they locked the building, they moved down the block to uh, one of the shuls over there. And Blazer Gordon says, he said, well, if you agree not to read Haskol literature, uh, if you don't agree not to read Haskol literature, I'm not going to deliver any more shiurim to you. And the boy said, you're lying. You can't stand to do it. You you can't stand to put up with it, not not give a shiurim. And he says, yes, I can. But of course, two weeks later, he gave in because they were right. You understand? And the students then said, uh, We want representation in the decision making process. This is part of Trotsky. This is part of 1905 Russian Revolution. Uh, Releza Gordon says, No. Well, he says, that Slobodka, they do that. They have a VOD where they consult with the author of Slobodka. And, uh, and Releza Gordon says to Simchasov, and Slobodka, they aren't people, they're stickholts. You know, they, they, they're blockheads. <laughs> So no wonder he says he has vods of the students. Whatever they say, he's going to do anyway. says so the facade of a democracy, but it's not really what's going on over here. The author can control them. It tells I have independent, strong-minded people. It's completely different. My, the, And anyway, it goes on like this. Now, while all this is going on, so the, uh, this is not the typical biography of a historian when I'm describing to you. I didn't mention anything about university. I didn't mention anything about courses. I didn't mention which school and professor you came to, like Bear last week. None of that. It's a very different kind of atmosphere. And uh, uh, obviously, in this kind of uh, environment, everything depends on SNCC system. You Get it? That uh, In order to find out who's really behind the scenes, the best guy in this year could be a communist, literally. You understand? So he says, so so the the Moscowists all have, you know, uh, the, the... the classic um, control and divide uh, methods. You find out which one in the Chabura is the weakest character and you work on him to tell on the others and things like this. Now, while all this is going on, so I want you to understand what's happening over here. Simcha Asav, like like many others, he's there for davening, he's there for learning, he's very good in learning, but in the Chutzah Seder, for example, they had two two and a half hours off in the afternoon. He says the Chutzah Seder and in the nighttime, that he reads, history, Haskalah. Evrit, uh, and all this sort of thing. So, Rabbi Laser Gordon calls him and he says, my snitch system tells me that you're reading Haskalah history and you're, give, you're addressing clandestine Zionist meetings on Friday nights, and you're giving lectures, history lectures, which is killing attendance at the learning seder. <laughs> you see him? Because it tells Friday night after, especially in winter, Friday night after dinner, you're supposed to go back and learn, even though formally it's not a seder, but that's what everybody's supposed to do. And then this guy started giving lectures Um, at some clandestine location in the town, and too many boys are going, and we notice they're not here at the Seder. So Simcha says, "Uh, guilty. He says, and then the Rashiva says, I got a full report about your lectures. I I understand there's no epic courses, but, you know, we don't approve of all this sort of thing. Anyway, why didn't you ask me for permission? So Simcha says, if I would ask, would you give me permission? This is why I didn't ask. So Revolta goes, (laughs) good (laughs) gazalt. Right? But nevertheless, you shouldn't regret and all that. And if you do, you can turn it up in Right? So Simcha said, it's either you trust me or you don't trust me. He said, I can tell you just one thing. Derech amunah which is a Pusach in, in Mishlei. And Evelaz uh, is this is what he writes. He sat there, he thought about it, thought about it, but after a while he said to the mashki, just leave him the heck alone. Right? In other words, I trust him, and we're not going to say any more about this. So this is why he dedicates all of his books later on <laughs> to blazer. Gordon, this is not your typical kind of environment. And so the four years he spent, there was tremendous learning, tremendous upheaval, tremendous uh, interaction with communist, socialist, this, that, and the other. Uh, X tells guys, just come back to Yeshiva and say, what are you wasting your time? Follow me. And many do. Uh, other guys, you know, it, was, it, it wasn't a reg. It's not near Israel, let's put it that way. And it ain't why you. And it certainly is not, uh, you know, a uh, mere yeshiva or something like today. I'm talking about something that that, that uh, doesn't exist in, in our time. At the age of 19, he leaves the hotels. It's a magical place. He returns home. His personality is formed. He's what you call a from Moscow There is such a thing. Now, in Baltimore, probably think everybody's a maskil It's not religious. He's totally believing. And he did what he did. And he's observant. And it was actually a, an important talmid Chacham by this time. Uh, but he's opposed to the narrowness and the control freak nature of Harediism, as we would call today. That's who he is. He, knows, he, he likes learning, so I want to do it in my way, in my style. And I don't want, like I say, a mashkiach or somebody else saying, ooh, you can't do this. That is obviously something he loves. You understand? He, he happens to be a person. He loves learning. He also loves Jewish culture. He also loves Zionism. There are many like him. And anytime somebody puts it in the nose, like, you're exactly the problem. He he returns to Luban, to his hometown. He marries the rab's daughter. (laughs) right? And when the rabbi moves to Israel, he's elected the rab of Luban. And so the guy I'm talking about was the rabbi there before Moshe Feinstein. It's kind of funny. Okay. Uh, Again, this is not your typical uh, biography of a famous historian to be the rab of a shtetl. And if he was built in a different way, like Moshe Feinstein, that's where he would stay for the rest of his life or in similar kind of circumstances. If you're interested in a rabbinical career, uh, and the one way to do it is like the old guilds. He married the old guy's daughter. That's a common way. But another way is like, here he's a rub of a community over here. Later on in life, he might move to a larger community, maybe to a larger community. and that's how the career system worked in that kind of world. That's not what he was interested in. The small town is obviously too boring. For a person that I'm describing, especially with wide interests, who is there to talk to in Luban, okay? He's invited at this point to, uh, to join the base Din of Rebbe Lez, Now he's talking about the capital of Belarus, in Minsk, where he served for three years. Okay, this is a very chasha appointment. His father-in-law must have got this for him, right? A, this, this was the, uh, the successor. Let's put it this way. Him and Chaim Brisco were the two big rabbis of Russia. That's the, the, just, just each one had a team, you know, so over the course of time, the Chaim Brisker team has won out that he was bigger. But he was very big. This is my father's rebbe, by the way. And, um, and uh, he's very big. So this is, you know, one of the foremost basins anywhere. And uh, he's in the company of, of Gedoli Ador. I mean, uh, the, the people that you interact over here, this was like, uh, what should I put it? Vilna and Minsk were the two big basins. And so here's somebody. So this, again, is not your typical uh, biography of a Hebrew University professor, Right. He's a rabbi in but then there was a chevro in the basement of Relezer Rabinovich um, to get smicha from him. And he also gets smicha from Rizzo Zalman Meltzer. Uh, these are two Orthodox rabbis. Now, the logical career step is to secure a communal rabbinate. He's very well situated. Uh, married the right person, got the right smicha, knows the right people. And as you see, it obviously didn't bother these people at all. He was Zionist, he was interested in Inavrit, because a lot of the big rabbis were Okay? Well, Yachiba Rabinowitz, for example, the one who, wrote, who published *Apelles*, which was the *Yateg Naman* at that time, was a member of the Zionist movement in Herzl's time. Later he changed and started the Yagoda. Right? So we talked about this when we talked about uh, uh, the, the, the Doros Uh But instead, he does something most unusual. And um, 1911, I think it was, he joins, or 12, he joins a very controversial yeshiva in Odessa. Okay, now. Uh, they used to, the, Europe used to be like this. They used to say 30 miles around uh, Vilna, you could smell the Rechat Torah. 30 miles around Odessa, you can fear the fires of saying? <laughs> this, is, this is the good old days when Odessa was what the Chachme Odessa, the headquarters of the Haskal in Russia. Okay? And here you're not talking about Rabblezer Gordon, tells Telzer, all the rest. You're dealing with a different, different Chabura. Okay? You have Rav Tzair, Chanaam, Klausner Bialik. These are names, some of you may not have heard it, some of you heard it, but these are the aviavos of avos of the cultural Zionism. Okay, um, This guy uh, was, uh, how should I put it, he had been the Rav, appointed by the Russian government, you know, the Rav Mitam in Odessa. Uh, he learned in, in, in uh, small yeshivas, he had smich, but he is a member of the Chaburah of he writes a, a, a famous in Hashiloach, you know, in, in, in the Khanam's in the newspaper. This is poison to the yeshiva guys. You see? They hate his guts. In fact, uh, um, he <laughs> he, they, he was a Moscow, and so the rich people liked that. And at one point, the rich Jews in St. Petersburg went to appoint him as the chief rabbi of the Jewish community of St. Petersburg, but at least they had enough of their hair to ask for a blazer gordon. Who was visiting that time? He said, "What do you think of Chernovitz? A damn guy! <laughs> he ends up in, in Odessa. The first thing he does—this is a tricky story. First thing he does, he makes an eruv. Actually, no. He said, "You don't need an eruv. You can carry without an eruv." If you if you know the topography of, of Odessa, which is which is very interesting, if you know the topography of Odessa that you see that the cliff goes this way, and the harbor goes that way, and the thing and the train line goes this way, and then You know to do so, well. You know, a rabbi comes in, a special effort, and says, like you can carry on Shabbos. He said because the Arab. Yeah, right. So, Chaim Brisker declared war him, and, um, and he got 100 signatures from famous rabbis. He said, the Arab is no good, and this guy's a phony, should be thrown out. He sent out a bunch of letters. He got two haskamas. orthodox rabbis who said that he's right that the topography is correct the name of the two orthodox rabbis were the orsamech and the (laughs) rogachever so he published them in a in a pamphlet called trei (laughs) Kameo. so it's a it's interesting times that we're dealing with over here Uh, by the time simcha asab shows up he he started um what everybody dreamed of 100 years ago which is the perfect yeshiva should have enough English and enough Hebrew. Shouldn't be too frum, shouldn't be insufficiently she Should be just Goldilocks. You understand? Everything should be just so. The yeshivas are too narrow. Uh, we'll have them also teach Russian, but we'll also teach Evrit. But, but they'll also finish us. And then they'll also do this and all that, and which, which is, which is, which is uh, baloney. Um, but no, no, no. It, it, it turned out to be baloney. But they were trying to, they were, they were seeking, okay, a, a success, something that's never occurred. But people dreamed of it, which and, and tried it, and that was a successful maskilic yeshiva. Such a thing has never happened, but it's been a desideratum uh, of, uh, of, of certain types, and still is today. There's some places that are. I don't want to get into politics now, but there's some places like that never not successful either, uh, because it's, it's 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 too interconflicted, and uh, just to get. Achanaam was the one who came with the idea. He's the one who who founded the school. They got permission from the Russian government, but then the Russian government said to him, you never went to college, so we can't recognize you as the head of of an actual school because they wanted this to be recognized as a theological institute that would get free from the draft, you see? And uh, the Russian government was too stupid to figure that this is something playing into their hands. So he left to go to Germany to um, get a PhD and and, and, uh, things like that to get some real grounding. Uh, You saw Rabin, if anybody knows who that is. The famous uh, Chachmas Yisrael person, later the head of the JTS in Breslau, he became the head and made it more from. But uh, this guy, who's a Shema Shabbos and a Shema term Mitzvah, but he just doesn't believe in God, but everything else he absolutely gave. Uh, Joseph Klausner what teaches Bible criticism at the Yeshiva. <laughs> so they were highly conflicted. And Simcha Asaf in 1913, as he, uh, Rabin leaves, so he becomes a Rosh Yeshiva. So this is a very unusual kind of, a, what is he, 24 years old? He says, it's a very unusual kind of career pattern in which he could have been in the Basin here and the rub over here, all the rest of it. But obviously, he's looking to create the place that, as he said before, would be as successful from Goldilocks, Maskilic, Yeshiva, will turn out the right kind of rabbi. He will try to do this in Jerusalem. Okay, that, that, that's who he is. I'm trying to show you um, a certain style that you're probably not familiar with. But once upon that time, it was, very, it was very widespread. Maybe you had grandparents like that. Um, and anyway, th- th- this is what happens. Um, he comes in. Uh, as I said before, it's a conflicted. He teaches and Poskim. And it's weird, but he likes it. And he hones his pedagogical skills. He'll become a master teacher. And this is clearly, if you know anything about his writing whatsoever, he's a master teacher. He acquires autodidactically a secular education. That's very hard to do. A lot of Maskelem tried that, like a plunter. Do you understand? It's, uh, it's very difficult to do. He's about the only one I know who gets it right. He reads up on law, finds out that since he's teaching Talmud, so it has to do with law, so he wants to read up on Roman law, on Russian law, on English law, on American law, on French law. It's rather strange. Right? You don't find too many people in Odessa in 1914 <laughs> reading all these uh, sort of volumes. Now, um, I don't know what would have happened to this place if it hadn't a but you have nothing to worry about. The Russian Revolution came in 1917. By 1919, all Jewish culture is over. The Reds take over. They close everything down. Um, Whoever doesn't leave gets shot, as you know. And so Asaf flees with his wife and kids to Paris for a year. And then he goes to Germany for a year. He's obviously looking for a job, but he has, as we would say today, zero credentials. What do you you have? You have from who? So that doesn't mean anything. Um, So imagine a... a, um, a type, which is still around with us today. Uh, and that is someone who's very from the yeshiva world, who actually knows autodidactically a lot of uh, information, who really can write a better article than someone else, <laughs> we know a few, and, um, and yet doesn't have a position because they don't have any kind of normal, as a side regards, education in this tract. He's looking for something. During these two years, and man, and he's already married and has a daughter. He goes to universities, he visits the great libraries, he looks up the manuscripts, he reads up on law. By 1921, mid-21, he makes Aliyah, because there's no place for him in Europe, Uh, he's just going to be a guy with an accent. But if you go to Israel, to New Palestine, under British mandate, all you have to know is Yivrit, Yivrit he knows, this type of person I'm talking about is a Zionist, is a Moscow, He's the type of person who, you know, likes dik you know, who, learned, who spoke in this ivrit-ivrit uh, type uh, environment in Odessa and places like that. So he actually is, is going to be part of the new um, Hebrew uh, reality over there. But if you go in 1921 to Palestine, what kind of a job can you get there also? Remember, he does not want to be a rabbi of Meish So, you know, even in Gula. So what, so, so, so what is there for him? At that time, um, he comes at the right moment the right place in the right moment, there are two teachers' seminaries that have been formed, and the process possibly being formed. Um, here's the secular one, good old David Yellen, which was started earlier, and this is to... Te- uh, let me just explain for a second. It's the British mandate. The British rule Palestine, but they don't want to spend any money on it. And one thing they're totally mavatar on, is education, which was great for the Jews vis-a-vis the Palestinians. Uh, the British government spent no money on public schools. They re- expected each community to take care of its own. The Jews respond to this, because we are people of education in our background and our blood, by setting up an entire reshet, as you know, in fact, multiple uh, school networks, religious, not religious, This up to a university in the 1920s, and teachers, colleges, in order to have professionals, and this sort of thing. And the result is that the Yeshuv will have secondary education on a on a surprisingly wide level. The Arabs do not do this. This is what this is what put them behind us. This. this is the reason is the Jews and the Yeshuv jumped ahead. Because in the nineteen twenties, thirties and forties there was almost no secondary schooling in the Arab sector in Palestine. There were there were a few Christian schools uh, here and there that the the Arabs would attend, especially the Christian Arabs, and a few more, but Overall, for the population, there was a gigantic amount of illiteracy, and certainly uh, post sixth grade literacy was really absent from the community. That means society is going to be scientifically backwards. You know, it's not going to be technologically behind. This is why Ben Gurion later on said we have a qualitative event. This, this is the reason. So, at the very beginning, for a variety of reasons, they already set up in, um, in Yerushalayim over here this, uh, I forget what the, the be- Beit uh, Midrash Lamorim. Now they've changed the names. all but used to be called David Yellen. So the, immediately it was clear that all the schools will have um, non-religious teachers. So the Mizrahi went crazy and said we got to match them to provide teachers with professional training, pedagogical training, for the religious network of schools that we want to set up in Palestine. And so they made what is today called Lipschitz College. At that time they called it uh, other names. Uh, it was a mixture of a bunch of different uh, colleges, but the bottom line is, uh, it's not really college. It's 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 like a teacher's uh, training institute. Um, as I said before, these have. Let's go to the next one. These are the intra-Zionist culture wars. Intra-Zionist. David Yala Khanam, They want a secular uh, school system. People, you probably never even heard of these people. Rabbi Meir and others. They want a Dati, as we would call it today, religious Dati Lumi, um, religious school system, and so they need qualified people. Uh, I'm talking about the old Mizrahi movement, in which uh, um, the old vision was no yeshivas. Uh, They are not interested in that. Uh, They want to set up uh, schools, high schools, eventually uh, some kind of post-high school framework. Uh, This was their big mistake. They didn't get any yeshivas, and therefore the Haredim were the only ones that had the yeshivas and supplied the teachers later on for their high schools. Uh, But this this is the era it's at. If you ever look at an old textbook from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s even, in a uh, religious Zionist high school. I've seen them. Uh, It's 95% Zionism, 5% Judaism. What I mean to say is if you see a reader, you know, I've seen a reader. So it's Bialik, it's uh, Tchaikovsky, this, that, and the other, and a little bit of something religious. It's it's not what you imagine. They've changed now, but it's it's not what you would imagine. They really were the impact of the uh, mainstream Zionist movement. Uh, But meanwhile, the old Mizrahi school system Uh, let's put it this way, does need trained teachers and they need need, uh, scholars. And um, in that kind of environment, a guy like Simcha Asaf uh, has the right credentials because for the Mizrahi teacher seminary, the fact that he was the head of the Yeshiva in Odessa, that's good enough. You don't have to have gone to college. You don't have to have have gotten a university degree. Uh, I might add, by the way, you know, also taught here later on for the same reason, Rabbi Seven. When he came to Israel in the 30s, again, there was no place for God, he was a gonadir, adir, you know. That, that's an understatement. I mean it, an understatement. And yet, the only place he could get a job is teaching Mizrahi Semitic. We taught for like twenty years uh, because you don't. Know, it's not Israel of today. It was Israel at that time, and and it looked uh, very different. Uh, don't worry. He asked the, He's a Lubavitch, He asked a Rebbe if he can, if he can teach there. <laughs> um, anyway, during the next two years, that would put us in nineteen twenty-two and twenty-three. Asaf publishes two words works that gained very wide attention. Right, two really excellent books. Uh, now um, they might be boring to some people, but they're really not. What he does over there, as, as a matter of law, is he has a wonderful survey. It's not long books at all. They're more—they're like big pamphlets. Uh, small books. He goes through all the makorah, all the sources on these subjects. What are be- This is a good topic. I mean, I could give this talk one time here, or something like that. What's the history of basins? Be- okay. Do you have one in Baltimore? Do you have one in Baltimore? What do they have in Europe? What do they really have in Europe? Don't tell them what you think. What do they have? And what kind of system did they have in Lithuania? And what kind of system did they have in uh, Germany in, the, uh, in, this, in this period? What really happened in uh, Spain? I'll just give you an example. In Spain, the they are elected by the community all the time. You don't have that over here, you see? And in another country, they do it this way. And what was their competence? And where did they have appeals courts? Higher courts who could appeal to where they didn't. Where did the government interfere? And it's very Masudah. It's very nice to read. I, I can only, I'm not going to read it with you. But I can just tell you, I read this years ago. Was, uh, it, it really, uh, I loved it. Both of these are very, very good. What is the Jewish uh, law, the traditions on punishments? Now the average guy says, so well, we don't no Sanhedrin anymore. And the Gemara says, you can't have a death penalty. So you can't do absolutely. That's you're in yeshiva. And then you go in the real world. And he says, you look at the Chuvits over here, or the Takanos that survive over here, or what we found in the Ganis over here, or whatever they had up to 1922 when he published this. And it's very thorough, very scientific, um, everything fully footnoted, obviously. And you see that here's a master. He, he covered all the material, but in a very succinct fashion. He left nothing important out, but he didn't have any plop-plopping, not the kind of prosaic, uh, what's the what, what's the prolixity do you find in so many of these uh, kind of authors? Everything is very spare, and you see, unlike Halevi, unlike the Dersu Sham, he had editor. In fact, he had a ruthless editor, which is which is the best thing in the world. And so, even today, and this one, I think one of these two is on Hebrew books. Um, you, you you could you you could read this with great profit. That, that's all I can tell you. You could read this with it, 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 it's really a wonderful work. At least that's my opinion. And. Um, so what does this mean? Uh, this is first class stuff. And who is this guy? You know what the, We never heard of him. Uh, he, he's not from a German university. He's not from any of those type of places. We usually think of where to get this knowledge about all the uh, general history, because he, you know, he, he quotes Roman law in there and other things like that. Who is this dude? Asaf is in the right place at the right time. Many people, in the course of their careers, they're not. But he was. It's in the right place at the right time, because in 1922-23, when all this was coming out, that's Chaim Weissman and, and Einstein, when they visit America to raise money for Hebrew University. Thank you very much. Okay, The great dream of the higher Zionism is to have an actual Hebrew University, which is not something that should be laughed at. The reason is in 1923, Jews are subject to quotas everywhere, and it only gets worse as the 20s and 30s goes on especially when Hitler comes to power. You don't understand what it's like to be a Central or Eastern European Jew, and very often a Western European Jew, depending where you are, and you can't get into university. It just won't work. And so you might have to convert, you might have to fake it out, you might have to change your name, or do what a lot of men end up doing, which is going to the, uh, what shall I say, the Tijuana School of Medicine or something like that, you know, some third-rate place, because what are you going to do? And here, they were holding out the idea although this is very controversial, that you'll be in Jerusalem, uh, a, a university, and they won't discriminate you against you because you're Jewish. That's one thing they won't do. You understand? Now, um, it's more complicated than that because Weizmann and Einstein actually had an image not along the lines that I just said. Weizmann and Einstein had an image that the Hebrew university will be uh, what we would call a post-grad school, a hochschule, which means Institute for Pure Research. Like I showed you the other day, the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, for pure physics in Germany. Einstein was on that, you understand? Max Planck, people like that, that's what they wanted over here. Their vision is to have a super high-end kind of thing, that'll bring true glory. Now, naturally, Chaim Weizmann and Albert Einstein are two big scientists, you know? So their idea of a kiddish Hashem is, you make a place that works. Science. If they would have been chess masters, then they would have a place that would teach you chess. But the point is that this is, this is the big dream at that time. It starts slowly. They had big ideas, they had no money. But as I told you last week, in 1923, these guys who have different ideas have the money. Okay? Magnus is the rabbi in New York at Temple Emanuel. Uh, Warburg is the richest Jew in America, and he's got the money. And Magnus, although Warburg's not a Zionist, Magnus is like this you know, this is a good idea. I think you should get a board. Especially the first school of the university, because the university collection of schools, you have medical school, law school, that sort of thing, should be school Jewish studies. Okay? Uh, after all, Jewish studies—there uh, 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 was no school anywhere in any university of the world at that time for Jewish studies. I think I mentioned last week, Judaism is beneath contempt. No decent university finds it worthwhile to study the Jews. Jews are not a nation and have a people. They, anyway, they should have departed long ago. Like uh, Arnold Toynbee says, they—they they have no—you uh, 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 know—political uh, no politics. Uh, their literature is beneath contempt. Who knows what all that junk is? And, you know, it's, they, listen, we don't have a department of, of gypsy studies, and we don't have a department of Hottentot studies, and we certainly don't have a department, that's what they are, they certainly have a party of Jewish studies. This is the world, okay? And um, all the founders of uh, the Wissenschaft des Judens were always petitioning the German universities. Sons, Steinschider, people like that said, no, Jews do have, and it should be done in a university context, and it's not going to happen. So here they say, at least in Jerusalem, where it's our money, and we own it. Here, we'll do it. And so this is a very hush of appointment, as I can say over here. And um, <clears throat> he gave a quarter of a million bucks in 1923. That was money. Okay, Warburg. That, that, that's how the Hebrew University started, with that. He put as a condition that this guy should be president of the university, which the other guys regarded with horror. You understand? Because as I say, he just had some stupid <laughs> Semitics degree when he was a reform rabbi in Germany. He wasn't a, a uh, sort of thing. And a few years later, I don't know if you know this. Weizmann and Einstein get divorced from the Hebrew University. You see? They said that this is a piece of junk. This is not what we want. This is totally off the derech. Weizmann, as you know, will make his own institute, won't he, in Rehobo. And that, that's why. Anyhow, but that doesn't affect our hero. Um, the, 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 the university starts slowly, and they got to recruit a faculty. Well, there are no PhDs running around in Palestine in 1923, or very few. Very few. Okay? Um, and how are you going to get a faculty that will be able to teach at a very high academic level? I repeat, in an objective manner, but they actually know something. So for Talmud, they want mechkar. You understand? Know, they then not want somebody to give a shir like in Yeshiva. They want somebody to do the history of the text. You understand you know what I'm saying? And the different gears and all the sorts of things that go along with that. So they get it. they get a guy Yaakov Nachum Epstein, who will become very famous and will teach there for decades went to Mary Yeshiva, uh, he's a Shema Shabbos, but he is, uh, wants and gets complete freedom to teach as critically as he wishes in, in the Talmud. So it's like Halivni or something like that, you understand? Which is, you can say that this isn't really this and that's not really that. Um, you know his son-in-law is Druckmann, you know, Rabbi Chaim Druckmann. So, um, you know, he's, he's, it, 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 this is how they're trying to put a, a thing together for Jewish History, they want a Hasheba Ph.D., preferably from a German university. And so eventually, not right away, they get a uh, bear. Uh, but what about for ri- rabbinic literature? You see, in Oxford and Cambridge and Heidelberg and Harvard and Yale, there's no such thing as rabbinic literature. That's a piece of junk. But in Hebrew University in <laughs> right? The, 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 that's not true. So who can teach post-Talmudic Jewish literature, which is such a large and huge field? Um, where, where, where are we going to get somebody like that? There's nobody out there. I mean, a guy like Bear was an Amharaz. 99% of the people who got PhDs in the university were Amharazim, you understand? They, they, they just don't know rabbinics. There are very, very few that you can do so. Where are you going to find it? Um, well, there's Asaf. He lives around the corner, <laughs> right? Uh, he's as good as anybody. And so he gets a, an appointment at the very beginning of the Hebrew University to be the uh, Marseillean you know, and the, the lecturer in uh, Geonic literature, Gaonica. The reason is because once upon a time, a hundred years ago, Gaonica, even though it's a boring topic to most people today, I can just take it from me, Gaonica and Goonic literature was totally sexy in the academic world in the 1800s and the early 1900s, that's how it goes. This is to a certain degree the golden age of that. This is the area the yeshivas don't go into. I'm talking about the Geniza in Cairo, the uh, collecting of all the um, articles that are published, fragments in different places, it's an area of Jewish history and rabbinical literature that 99% don't ever encounter. Because in Yeshiva, you learn the Gemara, the Rashi, that's post-Gaonik, you know, and the other is him And uh, if you do Halacha, you basically do the Rambam, the Torah, and it's all like skips after uh, the Gaonim. It's just a lacuna. That's why uh, most of the people involved at this period, uh, by and large, were not religious, okay, but, were, but, but it had come from religious backgrounds, and um, uh, we're able to use the kind of uh, yeshiva education in Lithuania that, that we're talking about over here, and then turn in an academic direction to do the kind of Hebrew diplomatics that I was talking about The Bear did last time, to be able to pick apart fragments of uh, texts written in a uh, funny Aramaic, and uh, usually it's only pieces. And you have to know the whole Talmud in order to know what they're talking about. It's quite a task. So Louis Ginsberg in New York, because he went to tell us himself. And uh, this guy taught at the Hebrew College. Isn't that interesting? For a year. Jacob Mann. But he's also a Galiziana, really, who you know, runs away, goes to England, and gets a degree in Oxford. But his his learning is really from Galicia. He ends up at the Hebrew Union College and but a reform, because there's no jobs. Right? So he, he ends up teaching for 20 some, he died young, 20 some years, and publishing very good material. But for well, you know, who are his students? They don't understand. They can't be Hebrew. They're certainly not Aramaic. go time, perhaps you've heard of. This is the one guy that was from, we'll talk about him a little later, Benjamin Menashe Levin, who is a, like a Simcha Asaf. He also went to Tells, but somehow or other, he eventually goes to Switzerland and goes to university and gets a PhD over there, and then falls in love with, there was Rishonim, Halebi, right? Comes an acolyte of his, and then eventually moves to Palestine and also r- writes significantly on the uh, Gaonim. So my point is, you really got to be qualified to engage in this stuff, or else you have to work around your weaknesses, like Solomon Schechter does. He wasn't the biggest Talmud Chachem in the world, but he knew how to pick out the story that you find in the Gonic literature that will sound good in a, uh, in, in a general audience. Simcha Asaf is the kind of guy we're talking about. Here's a guy who has acquired sound academic and scientific training on his own. Um, he certainly has the yeshiva background. He knows by the time we're talking about, he's able to survey the totality of rabbinic literature. It's quite a statement I'm making. Shasan Postkim, so to speak. Um, he will be able to do what you can't... There was no Google at that time. You can't say, if you see this, this fragment from High Gone, Is that in some Rishon somewhere? How does, how does the average person know it? And he knows how to do all that sort of thing. And so um, he publishes a lot on the Gonic material in the next three decades. Uh, as I said before, he's a big Talmud Chacham, and his stuff is, in my opinion, sounder, otherwise I wouldn't be speaking about him tonight, is sounder than most of the others. There's a lot of the guesswork that the others have offered, as I just mentioned before, have not proved to be true later, and his has. He also turns out to be a better writer. He's actually a master writer and lecturer. You think he went to Heidelberg. You won't believe it. In other words, for a guy that has no formal education, he really hit a bunch of home runs. And so he so eventually he rises the, the academic chain. He becomes assistant professor, full professor. It's not so easy. okay? It's not so easy. In, in this particular uh, field, as, as you can see over here, here's two of of several of the works he does. For example, he's one of the few guys that can actually go to the Geniza in, in Cambridge, in the University of Cambridge, and um, actually understand all this stuff and put it together in a, a sound way. He publishes um, some of, in critical editions, of some of the halachic works of the Gonim. I don't get too technical over here, just take it from me. It's pretty impressive. Um, he publishes, very famous, the uh, Sitter of High Gon. Um, over here, which people have been talking about publishing for a hundred years, but nobody was able to pull it off. Went, I mean, Sadiqam, I'm sorry, the city of which you probably don't even know exists, but is around. And it's fascinating. Um, the brachas aren't exactly the way you imagine it. And uh, the davening isn't exactly... I remember, he, said, Vechen he says, all year, for example. You know, there's the long atah kadosh. And all kind of little things like that is a masterful uh, introduction by Simcha Asaf and this sort of thing. I'm talking about the history now of prayer, of sitters. This is, uh, sounds boring to somebody, but it's not. The reason I haven't bracketed with Hirsch is because it turns out, as he points out of here, Sadiqon ends up doing what, what, what Hirsch and a lot of people do, which is you take a bunch of different nusachs and try to make a nusach hacheid out of it. In his time, he's living in around the year 900, and so you have different nusachs running around for Jews in Babylonia in different places, in Eretz Yisrael in different places, in Syria in different places. And it's a, it's a hodgepodge and a nightmare. And he's trying to create his own hirsch when he made his show in Germany, and Rob Breuer when he did in Washington Heights. They're it from a lot of little communities because this set of balabams is like this. I want to hear this piyut, you know? It's, it's not as shvu if you leave this out. And the other one said you have to do eh, that way. And what's it? The narcissism of small differences? But it accommodates to it. I'm just trying to show you the sort of things he's been able to do successfully. He has this uh, um, he never published his lectures on the Gonic period, but after he died, they did. Mordechai Margolis uh, at the Hebrew University did, so that's uh, also very worthwhile. I first encountered this person from my sister, no less, when she went to Yavna million years ago in Cleveland. So it's interesting. Yavna, the super from Besinzer, but he went to Tells. <laughs> you see, and these are his lectures. They're wonderful, by the way, on as you can see over here in the Gonic literature and their period. And um, what can I tell you? They're just very good. He talks about the he talks about the various issues of the, the, the Onim, and you've got to know a lot to put this together. You just have to take my, take my word for it. It's a difficult hero, but it's not to him. Once he gets on that, he also starts another thing, and uh, also it becomes very famous, and that's his famous, uh, perhaps his most famous work, this Makorot right? Latoldo, the Chinuchbi Israel, which is the source book of. Um, sources, original um, uh, documents, anything having to do with with chinuch. You see, a hundred years ago, today not so much, but a hundred years ago, there was this big movement, Bialik and others started, what's called Isuf and Kinus, which means, and the other other cultures were doing it as well, and that means that you want to take a lot of the original sources and put them in edited editions and share them with the public, the idea being don't hear about what somebody thinks about Yehuda Levi. Here's Yehuda Levi. Now, I'm not going to give you the hard part about Yehuda Levi because you can't handle it. But I'll give you the easy part of Yehuda Levi. And here's the original stuff from this guy and from that. You understand? So, the most famous example I'm talking about is, uh, is Bialik's uh, Sefer Agada. Okay? But he's, uh, that's the only one in which he says, I'll take from whole and Enyaka, but also from Midrashim and all kinds of places you probably never heard of, Sikter Kahana. And he puts it together. He translates the Dvrid, puts Nakudos in there, and um, it became very popular. Okay, the Sefer Agada. Uh, uh, now, by the way, Biyalk wasn't from Reb wasn't from. But I remember years ago, long, longer when I used to visit Israel, I had some friends from the old school, the Mizrahi. You, you, you used to see this picture in their house, but they had a Yamaka one because because they uh, colored in the Yamaka. You know, Biyalk. I mean, you know, because the Sefer and it's 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 a, a new zone, but but that's not the only one. There are many, as I say, I did over here. Perhaps you remember in New York or something, the Bal Otsuris I, uh, Eisenstein, who uh, used to publish Otzer Hagados, ha- Otzer Vekuchim. Otzer, is, is that the next one? Yeah. See, so look at it. Otzer Masos. He uh, they're around, but the average person doesn't. He puts in one volume all the Jewish Marco Polos. He's Benjamin of Tudela, the of Vafera, people like that. Um, Here's the Haggadah with all the commentaries. Here's the debates. You know, the Ramban and Pablo Christiani plus all the others you never heard of. You, know, you understand? Uh, here is an encyclopedia that the guy put together on his own lonesome, uh, a Moscow living in, in, in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. He wrote a Hebrew encyclopedia, and he got some major scholars in the world remarkable to participate in it. I remember Bachar was one of them and others. Uh, and, he did, and he did a one-man show. And the idea, once again, is in the best masculine sense, to educate the public in a middlebrow fashion, middlebrow fashion, with acquainting them with their own history and their own sources. You get it? And so Asaf is the greatest of them all, and at leaked by itself, in my opinion. And he says four volumes, eventually. The going Lutol, which everybody should get if they're interested in anything like this at all. And, and, and um, what have Jews, Jewish schools been like? Uh, have we had Jewish schools? Did they have grades? Was it for boys or girls? Don't tell me some junk. Do you know what really happened? You know, here's what it says in the sources. You understand? You tell me, for example, girls don't went to school? What about this Rajma? What about these taconas that we have from this Italian city? What about this thing you have from Lithuania in the 1800s or the 1700s? What about this thing from the time of the Bali Toshas? Did they have Limurichol and Limuri Kosh? Did they not have that? Don't just shoot the bull reading me from some newspaper kind of thing. This is what it has over here. This is what it has over here. So he's, and, he, and he's really very good. What can I tell you? And it's It's, it's, it's a masterpiece. I remember picking this up years ago in Israel and I was like really excited and it was like in the back of some store; Nobody wanted it. Uh, it's four volumes of this uh, sort of thing. There's a guy in Israel now, conservative, named Glick. Um, and he's recently published this in a much bigger and wider edition. If you ever go to Israel or something like that, you can get it now in this new, new edition. I can't follow this to tell you the truth because he changed a lot, but I know the old one very well. And, uh, but this is a lot easier to read, and it's updated. And he goes around, excuse me, Asaf uh, so goes around the world. Ashkenaz fired eventually to Greece, to Persia, to Egypt, of course, and Yemen, and places like this. It's just, and, and to be able to put it chronologically together and thematically together. And once again, you're just sharing the sources with helpful footnotes. It's actually a liberating experience. This is what they had in the idea of, of Isuf and Qinus. You want to liberate the public from being dependent on commentators right? On some rabbi giving a speech somewhere. Or God help us from a journalist. This is the lowest form on earth, you know what I'm saying? uh, Why be be stuck on them? Read it yourself, okay? Now today we call this the internet, right? Uh, Then that's that's the effect of the internet. I don't need somebody to tell me what's going on. I can find out if I want want to do a little bit of research. Not even too much. I can look around. I don't need to have one newspaper tell me what happened to Israel. I can look at five, right? I can look at Al-Haram if I want to, I can also look at uh, you know, the Torah card at whatever I see. But this is in the 1920s and the 30s, and it's, it's, it's uh, most unusual. Um, what's interesting about all these is you have from stuff and non-frum stuff mixed together. Uh, I found this very interesting. The Satmar had the Otz Yisroel, but he had it in the closet. <laughs> you understand? <laughs> uh, now, Eisenstein is not exactly what you call a hey, Satmar and all the rest of it. But it's a hebrew encyclopedia and i'm all dothman cooking you know what i mean in in the whole sort of thing um anyway as i said before this is about empowerment and spreading knowledge among the jewish masses let's go to the next one the jewish encyclopedia america was an english attempt to do that they ended up making encyclopedias in german and russian and some other languages as i said before asaf in my opinion is bested a lot he picked up where gudeman left off in the 19th century, the chief rabbi of Vienna was Martin Skudeman, and he wrote, he was a great scholar, a conservative rabbi, but his best work, in my opinion, is uh, uh, called The uh, History of, uh, of Jewish Education, Lerenz uh, shift, uh, I think it is, and it was translated in a very wonderful Hebrew form, HaTorah V'Achaim, in 1897. I picked up once in Jerusalem somewhere, and again, um, this, this is what you call social history. This is the way people lived. This doesn't have to do with wars, and uh, which rabbi came here and there and the other, but what did people do? Lamaisa. Uh, what we're really concerned about today is: uh, you send your kid to TA or to TI. Are you going about the filler? Are you going to do this and These are very powerful statements. Okay. And what was the equivalent in, in times and places over there? Uh, <clears> there <throat> was, a, as I said before, he poured out four volumes over twenty years. Um, then he published um, individual articles which, again, you put together in two uh, uh, books. One's called Ba'ole Yaakov, and the other one's called Mecharimu Mesorot, or something like that. Um, and, again, I can just tell you, I've read them. I, I think they're wonderful. Uh, they, they've never been translated in English, but uh, they're um, uh, very well written. Well, I, I don't know how to, how to explain it. They have everything in there, but they don't have extra, and he's just uh, done with a wonderful um, spirit that's in, in over there, What's really cute is in 1932, uh you have serendipity. Three guys in three totally separate places wrote on the same topic. Okay? And it must have been because it was 1492. It's not, too, it's not uh, 400 years. It's not 450 years. No, it's 440 years. It's not 450 since 1492. That would make sense. But for some reason, in 440 years, they all decide after 1492 to write about the Muranos. Cecil Roth wrote a book, and he, in Rothian style, I'll talk next week. History in Morano is like very exciting sort of thing for the JPS. Um, Hirsch Simmels, who was a Wissenschaft guy eventually in uh, Vienna and then in Jews' college, he wrote *De di is in the responsa Literatur. It's a very Germanic in which you have chapters and headings. And also, he's very good. I mean, he's a big Talmud Chacham. He organized what was the story with the Muranos after 1492 and how were they received in rabbinic literature? And then you have a, just a fantastic article from uh, Simcha Asaf where he talks about Hanusim, you know, where, and, and, and what is the effect of it. That's the one you can read. Right? The others are very technical. Here's, here's, it's got all the technical information. It was not written in a technical way whatsoever. Okay? I mean, I'll just share one point because I can't stay a long time in any of these because of time. Just to share one point. Uh, and I've mentioned in other places as well I don't know if you're familiar with this, but obviously in Jewish law, once a Jew, always a Jew, correct? Not really, not necessarily. The, uh, if you know about the Muranos and the response to literature, you'll know, especially in the 15, 16, 1700s, there were many big Sephardic post I mean some heavy hitters, who said, under pressure, that uh, it's not true once a Jew, always a Jew, Actually, if you convert to another religion, you're dead. And the reason they said this, is because, or the effect of what they said was the following. Here's a Portuguese Jewish girl who flees from Portugal or something like this. Let's say it's 1560, and she comes to Turkey, or Venice. Let's say she goes to Turkey, and she's 20 years old, 25 years old. Her husband is, uh, is also Jewish. He's a Marano, and he's a stark Catholic. He thinks she's crazy. So she's the hero, Correct. She dropped everything in order to go with a Jewish life. She really risked her life. And a lot of these people had terrible adventure stories caught by pirates and things like that. And finally, she comes to Salonika, or to Istanbul. And now she comes there in the base and says, well, you're stuck. You're in a guna for the rest of your life. Because you were married to a guy beforehand. And if you tell me that it was done in a church service, there's a way around that with the two was the rebush. But what if it wasn't? You understand? Know so what do you do? The case I'm just describing, she is stuck, so she goes to the Maristam or the Lekhah Mishnah or somebody or, or, or Marin Leif, somebody's big, so big, spread uh, post and all the rest of it, and they say it's all in these right. They say, let's take a look at the Gemara again. <laughs> you understand? And it turns out, without going into many details, that even though it says Yisrael Afa Bishalachati Yisraelu, it doesn't necessarily mean what you think over here. And by the time they're finished. If this guy really converted uh, out of uh, sincere will to another religion, he's dead. The point is like this. You can get married and you don't need to get. This is very interesting sort of things. Now, I'm just trying to tell you that, you know, you'll find this very much in Simcha Asif. You'll find it definitely in the other uh, guy Simcha. I mean, Caesar Roth doesn't know much about it. But um, it's the sort of thing that it, in which he uh, excelled. And he has a wonderful article about Egypt at the time of the Rambam, which again would be a great speech because since he's a gaonic, expert. He knows what Egypt, like Egypt was a uh, Lorna place, you know, very low cultural level, and when the Rambam came there, he was like really depressed because the Jews in Egypt are, have all the, um, what shall I say, all the vices and none of the virtues of Jews, and uh, he describes it in great detail. I don't know if you noticed, the Jews were being tortured by a Jewish tyrant at the time the Ramam showed up, and he had to, um, what should I say, engage in all kind of intrigues to get this guy knocked out of office and killed, and they even wrote a Megillah to celebrate this. You understand? So I'm just trying to tell you. Um, he has a wonderful article about two slaves and the slave trade. Um, what do you know about slavery? You don't know anything about slavery and slave trade. What is the history of Jews involved? Did they own slaves? Did they marry slaves? Did they have children by slaves? Did they, did they do, like the Gemara says, you know, you treat somebody like a sheikha caninis and all this sort of thing? It's a very complicated, story, a very fascinating kind of story. Um, like other professors in Palestine, Asaf is politically engaged. In the period I'm talking about, in Hebrew University, these guys were not just uh, ivory uh, tower scholars. Uh, you know, Bergman and Martin Buber, and here's Magnus and Buber testifying against the establishment of a state of Israel in front of the Anglo-American Commission of Inquiry in 1946. I say against that because they wanted a, a binational state. Um, uh, many of the most famous professors at Hebrew University were leftists by the standards of that time. They had organizations like the like, like the um, Brit Shalom, people like that. Now, you had one, I'm aware of, just one, who was on the far right, and that was Klausner, who was our friend from the Bible criticism. He became the professor of Ivrit. In fact, when they appointed him, that's when Weizmann resigned. Um, now, uh, he's a Jabotinsky. In fact, he ran for president against Weizmann. Uh, he didn't win, but <laughs> he got one vote, but because Weizmann was a leftist, same in 1949. Uh, And one of the professors is a macher in the the religious Zionist movement and that is Asaf. You see? He is a politically, he's a member of the VAD of this and the vaad of that. He's very actively engaged in the spread of religious Zionism, which was very moderate movement in in, in those years. Um, It's not the shtachim, it's not gushamunim, it's not people, uh, what do you call it, Bennett, and that sort of thing. It's, It's the opposite. Let's go to the next one. These are the the Mizrahi says, yes, there's uh, Mayor Berlin, there's Robert Meiman, this is gold. Uh, these people were always 100% backing Weizmann, whatever he does, because they said, you know, give the guy room, he's got to deal with the British. If he has to make concessions, let it go. I would remind you, perhaps, you probably don't know this, when Herzl accepted Uganda, the Mizrahi voted for it. You understand? They say, oh, I'm religious Jews, all the rest of it. They say, listen, Herzl's doing the best he can, He's getting some traction out there. Let's go with this. It's not what you imagine. You know, the Mizrahi movement changed many years later, but not during the period that I'm talking about when Asav was in there. He was actually a big wheel in the movement. He was a representative of the Mizrahi in the Knesset. They used to have a Knesset before the Knesset. In the 20s, 30s, and 40s, when the Yeshuv was there before the State of Israel, the Zionist um, groups had their own uh, parliament. uh, The real power was with Ben-Gurion. don't worry. But But they had their own... They had their own parliament, and it was like a prepper. That's why they were able in '48 to move in seamlessly, because they already had the experience. They had the institutions, so they just took the old Knesset and then they turned it into the into the new one. Uh, he's actually a turns turns to be one of the top speakers because he was a great orator. This is what he picked up and tells. He's <laughs> a great orator. He starts a radio shear in Palestine already, which he delivered until his death, like Rabbi Tights did, and and, and the, no, a, not a dafyomi, but you know a Gamariomit. All the rest of it, and he has his groupies. It's really funny, like Nechamowit Leibowitz did. Remember, he used to write her from all over the place with questions. Asaf gets questions from all over the place, including from Fabrenta left wingers and all the rest of it, from some kibbutz up in the north. They say, You said this and this, and Baba Kama, but this is wrong, because when I was a sheep, he learned it this and this way. It's a wonderful, somebody has to put those things. <coughs> <so> <coughs> So many things put together. I put Rabbi Bach up there, because, uh, who was the first rabbi in this shul, that I'm speaking now, because he was a tellser. He was also a tremendous Balmazber, if anybody's old enough now to remember. In my opinion, he was the best Balmazber I heard. Uh, to be able to explain a gemaritosis and all those uh, very well, this was self skill. And therefore, he had a popular gemara class on the, whatever it was, in, under the British, it was the Palestine radio, and then it was on the Israeli radio. At Hebrew University, he dreams of making a rabbinical seminary Okay? There's a whole big article in this now. Uh, at various times in the 20s and the 30s, um, they wanted, there was a big push among um, many, it was also opposed by many, that they should have connected with the Hebrew University a rabbinical school. Okay? Now obviously it'll be Yeshiva of Odessa. That's, uh, he's try, trying to re- reproduce over here. But... <laughs> <laughs> excuse me. It's Yerushalayim. Things are different. It'll be in there. It's actually quite uh, fascinating. Graduates would be like in Germany rabbis with PhDs, for the yeshuv of Israel. You understand? He wants educated rabbinim for Israel, except that it won't be in Germany or some other foreign culture, but they always have some kind of inferiority complex vis-à-vis the local ethnic culture. Um, In other words, uh, he doesn't want this. Here's the chief rabbi of England and the chief rabbi of France. You can tell by the way that they're dressed that they're trying to ape. They They actually look funny. He said, that's not what we want. The rabbi doctor model in Europe didn't work out well because they had to kiss up to the other culture. It wasn't real. But here in Eretz Yisrael, it'll be different. Okay, And it's just an interesting uh, kind of model. Um, as I said before, it's a musculic ideal. Um, here in Eretz Yisrael, they'll be educated, fully Jewish, they'll be Orthodox, but modern, moderate, and familiar with Wissenschaft. Um, obviously, in his idea, the ideal rabbi will be a Bucky, bachy, a and also a bucky in a historia. <laughs> That's what it'll be. It's not going to hurt you. Um, such a rabbi would be both learned as well as intellectually sophisticated and that is an old idea this goes back to Naftali Wesley uh, who wanted to reform the education in the 1780s and and all the rest of it and uh, produce the type of personal bio. definitely a Talmud Chacham and all the rest of it but also know as you would say western uh, culture and in there it's an idea and an ideal that can flourish in the gray area that existed and to a small extent exists in Israel today but not in Chutzlaritz. And here, here's something very interesting. There never developed in Israel a conservative Jewish movement. I know they got one, but they never really, especially in those years, never really developed. Be, now listen closely to what I'm saying. Because you didn't have the denominationalism that developed in America in Israel, so the result was you had a gray area in which there were a lot of people that, they were, uh, that somewhere else would be considered conservative rabbis, but you know, in Israel, they're just in the left wing of the Orthodox or something like that like Saul Lieberman, for example, who who is an Orthodox rabbi, and uh, Professor Kusudo, who is a total Shomer Shabbat, was a very passionately religious Jew, but he's committed to coming up with an um, acceptable version of the documentary hypothesis, which means he believes in biocriticism, but he wants to show that it's not really you know, other people, meaning ideas that in the yeshiva world and the Hershian world would be out of uh, uh, agreement and yet nevertheless they don't control the whole world. There was a whole zone of people who were what you call moderately orthodox. And they said if you believe in the Torah basically the, the details, even the mark about details. You see? If you believe in the Torah basically how they work out, you know, whether it's a you know this criticism or that criticism, it's okay. It's maybe it's for me, maybe it's not for me, but you can give the guy an aliyah. You understand? Encounter for a minion he is part of our world. And these guys flourished in the Mizrahi uh, movement. That, that, that's what it was. This doesn't exist uh, today, but it did then. Uh, the Hebrew University Rabbinical Seminary is really pushed by a variety of actors, especially in the 1930s. Schock and the Millionaire wanted to do it because he wanted to start conservative Judaism. Like, that's his point. Uh, Asaf wants to do it for his reason. And then Professor Shmuel Klein, who was a firm rabbi from Hungary, went to the Hildesheimer Seminary, became the geography professor, uh, important one, the first geography professor in Hebrew University, okay? Uh, I mean, he's he was he was a rav in Hungarian kahillah for twenty years before he came to Israel and became a professor of university. They, so they're dreaming of perfect YU, I guess you'd say. He's dreaming of JTS. Uh, between one and the other, it didn't happen. Let's put it that way. It it, 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 it wasn't it wasn't going to happen. Um, there's opposition from the left. Epstein and there, he said, Oh my God, don't bring a yeshiva here of any form, don't bring a rabbinical seminary. They have spent their whole careers trying to liberate themselves from the rabbinical seminary model. They want uh, Freie Wissenschaft, they you get know, a freedom of, of, of research. Uh, I don't want anybody breathing down in the back. You bring in any rabbi onto Mount Scopus, you killed the whole idea of the Hebrew University. And so for that, And I'll say it again, he, and, and he was a Shermer Shabbos, he might have been, he certainly was a Shabbos. That's got nothing to do with it. I want any of this, uh, as they say, Aguda stuff. Or anything like that breathing down my back. And then you get opposition from the right that you would expect. Okay? You know, Chaim Meiser, during these years, wrote to the Hildesheimer's son that they were going to bring the Hildesheimer assembly to Tel Aviv in 1934. They were offered a big shattach, a big piece of land in Tel Aviv to set up um, strictly Orthodox, the Hildesheimer Rabbinical Assembly from Berlin, and make very Roll a variation of the same idea I'm talking about moderate Orthodox, or at least an Orthodox rabbi who has some secular education. And, uh, and he killed it. He said, uh, it was bad enough in Germany. There, your father was a great Sadiq. So he said, so there it was appropriate you know, to fight the reform. Don't be Mitami or role And they listened, I would say. You know, they never did do it. And so these ideas, the idea of bringing in, as they say, so, some kind of a why-you situation is there. So Asaf was nuts. OK? No, the idea, he thought that this could, could ever happen. This was, this was crazy. And would it have worked wouldn't have worked. I don't think so. Not, not, not in the Israeli society that was unfolding in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. It wouldn't go. Um, there is some of this brewing now in the world of the through Shrugah Yeshivot. Uh, I don't follow this very closely, but uh, Professor Glick, um, who, who's the one who did this uh, new edition of the Mekorot, Le Tol Dezachim of Yisrael, is a conservative rabbi. Um, they wanted him recently to be the head of that Mizrahi teacher seminary I showed you before, which is now called Lipschitz. And all hell broke loose this in 2008. It was a big battles within the Dati Kipas Rugan movement. And they didn't get it. You understand? And so the left-winger said that he was lynched. And the right-winger said, how could you even bring a, a conservative rabbi, Abikaris, into a Mizrahi uh, area? These, um, uh, what should I say, uh, tensions simmer within that particular uh, world, which is uh, just an interesting sort of thing over here. So in other words, my bottom line is there never did develop a separate conservative movement in Israel. You never had people like this. Okay? Um, now he bankrolled the whole thing and turned the, America into a denomination. There was no rich guy in, in, in Palestine who ever succeeded in doing, in doing anything like that. It, j- it just didn't happen. By the 1940s, Asaf had, by the time you get to the War of Independence, Asaf had risen to be the rector of the Hebrew University. Okay? That's the top academic job, to the War of Independence. Uh, Hebrew University, perhaps you know, some of you know, was uh, in the war zone. And by the time the peace was um, signed between Israel and Jordan, I don't know if anybody here is familiar with this, some of the old timers were, Israel had that enclave, and every week or two, under UN inspection, down to 1967, they they held on to it in the middle of Jordan, in the middle of Arab, uh, the the, uh, Jordanian part of Jerusalem, and they used to send a um, convoy under UN flag uh, every two weeks or something like that to bring food and, st- and reinforce the garrison that was there. So Mount Scopus, which today is flourishing, Mount Scopus was an empty place with buildings and uh, everything was empty. Uh, you know, in other words, they still had the old Coke machine. You know? and, uh, and nobody was there except the, the, the tahal, and, uh, and that's the way it, it, it lasted until the sixty-seven war. Okay? So it's because of that that the Hebrew built separate campuses in Givat Ram and places like that, because between 48 and 67, they wanted the Hebrew University to be in Israel, obviously, and so they had to totally build a campus. And then after the 67 war, they used both of them. So um, the point is that the uh, in the years I'm talking about, in 48, 49, 50, Hebrew was located uh, in Teresanto. You know what that is, right? It's uh, right in the, it's a block away from the Big Shul, from the great synagogue in, in Rehavia. Okay, you know, right? What's what's the hotel across the street? I forget. Yeah. Okay. There you go. know, yeah. So that was that was the Hebrew that was the Hebrew uh, university uh, when 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 uh, Simcha was the head over there. Now, I have to introduce another aspect. Getting near the end. In forty eight, Israel establishes a supreme court. Uh, you have a parliament. You have a president. And all that. We have a supreme court. Um, the supreme court in Israel is not like the American supreme court. The lawyers actually, and the Justice Ministry and the other judges, they appointed judges. It's like a very complicated system. It's not like over here that the president just makes a political appointment and the Senate either votes it up or down. Uh, it doesn't work like that in Israel, for better or for worse, but that's what it is. And so when they set up their first uh, Supreme Court, which I think was nine judges, so uh, the, the Germans were in charge of this, uh, Rosenbluth and people like that, and they wanted very exact uh, criteria. So a person can only qualify... He's been a judge, He has a graduate degree from a law school, recognized law school, or has preferably a, a German or a continental law school, and uh, has this and this and this. On the other hand, Ben-Gurion wanted that, um, how should I put it, that the Israeli Supreme Court should get traction. This is a very tricky business. After all, for a from Jew, what the heck is the Supreme Court of Israel? They're not religious. The law they made are man-made laws. This is not uh, God's law. Uh, to heck with it. You know, why should I have any, any uh, respect for them whatsoever? On the contrary, the person is a Machal Shabbos and he tells me this is the chok. You see? So the Agudah, well, forget it. But the Mizrahi, on the other hand, they wanted, and they do, to have some kind of connection and respect uh, for, for, the, for the secular laws of Israel. And it has to be, has to be a Supreme Court for the purpose of keeping law and order in the country. It has to be some uh, bring order out of the chaos, so to speak. And uh, at the end of the story, they say, this well, we have to have one black guy on the on the court, okay? Uh, one religious guy in the court, and so who's the religious guy going to be in the court? Well, Asaf, of course, he's written the books on 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 law. And he's actually actually knows law better than the law professors. On the other hand, they had written the law that only someone with a degree, the guy that went to college, so they actually passed the Simcha Asaf law. You understand? In 1948, in which they said, um, as you can see, you have to be a member of a Supreme Court or a very distinguished juridical scholar, Mishpatai Mufak. That's called the Asaf Law, to allow him to get on there. So here's a guy who had a big life hitting around the age of 60. He was a full professor. He was a rector. He was a a, a judge in the Supreme Court. He was, uh, well, I guess he didn't serve in the Knesset then. Uh, He does that uh, radio show. I mean, it's a plus for publishing material. It's, 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 It's quite interesting. And I'm not a legal expert, but from what I understand, he was considered a very distinguished jurist. They're still using his things. They call him the, like Cardozo. You know, he's still, They still quote a lot of his uh, rulings. And uh, he's the first one who tried to bring what they call the Mishpat Ivri, which means in Israel, for those that follow this, like Menachem Elon, that uh, you know, the state of Israel even today uses a hodgepodge of laws. I'm sure everybody knows that. There's a Turkish law. There's an Anglo-Saxon law. A certain amount of continental law. Then there's the Israeli legislation itself. And it's kind of uh, mixed up. The one thing they don't have is Jewish law, OK? They have law from the Talmud and places like that. And, but now they do. And uh, he's the one, with his knowledge, that when he wrote a Supreme Court decision, and he wrote a fair number of them, by the way, uh, so he does, of course, bring in all the necessary and appropriate secular stuff. But if he can bring in anything from the Talmud or, the, uh, or, or someplace like that in an appropriate fashion, again, in an, if it fits, the appropriate fashion, then he did do so, and he became the dream model of people like Menachem Elon and others that they wanted to uh, follow in his footsteps. Um, he died suddenly in October of 1953. He was only 64 years old. Okay? So he did not have a long life. And um, I speak about him tonight because he's one of a kind. What I described, he left no successors. Okay? There was no, nobody who uh, followed him that was like him. There could, couldn't be. He'd have to have lived his life to have his qualifications. In Asaf, the Haskalah worked. Not by anybody else, but by Asaf it worked. Where do you find an autodidact who can transform himself into a successful academic and get acceptance? But because of his unique background in Telz and in the Haskalah, he was able to do what other historians, other historians I say, could not do, which was to combine a thorough knowledge of Judaism, from and not from. Okay? I mean, he was a big expert on the Karaites, for example. He has a wonderful article about that. Uh, carries on what most of you think. Uh, He can combine all a thorough knowledge of Judaism from and not from with a thorough mastery of academic historical methodology. No one else from his contemporaries and predecessors could match that. That's quite a statement I just made. No one from his contemporaries and predecessors could, could, could match that. In addition to that, he had a very warm Jewish spirit. You can see it by anything you write. It's objective and loving at the same time. It permeates most of his writings. Most other historians then and now, right, with that cold analytical feeling. Uh, because if you don't put in that objective distance, then you feel you don't get any, any um, what shall I say, traction from your colleagues. Um, and it's for this reason, in my humble opinion, that his writings hold out today the way many others don't. There aren't too many people today in 21st century whose, whose books are being republished in new form. In fact, uh, not Epstein, not anybody from the 19th century. I, mean, I, 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 I can't think of it. It's interesting because it is old fashioned stuff. His, a lot of his stuff is not old-fashioned, meaning it still holds out, and that's uh, quite a statement I just made. Um, and um, next week will be our final week. I'm going to deal with one other historian, a very different type, but at least who wrote with a very warm feeling. That was a, it would be a Roth. And now at this ungodly hour, I bid you good night.